This is NPR's Book of the Day. I'm Kia Miyakonatis. Today, we've got two books wrestling with the ramifications of death and grief, including a book about the long-lost diaries of a young man who died on 9-11 that you'll hear about a little bit later. Our first book takes a look at all the things that we might find when we run towards the grief we have avoided. Laurel Braitman was only a kid when her dad was diagnosed with a deadly bone cancer. Assuming he had little time left, the family said their goodbyes. But her father went on to live for another 14 years. Years after his death, Braitman, now an adult, realizes that she has been running from her bad feelings and so goes on a quest to experience and transform her grief. Here she is talking to NPR's Sasha Pfeiffer about her new memoir, What Looks Like Bravery. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Now more than ever, your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, all tailored to your short and long-term goals. Backed by the strength and stability of a top 10 commercial bank, their dedicated experts work with you to build lasting success. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial, a member FDIC. Laurel Braitman was still in high school when she experienced one of the most devastating things that can happen to a child. Her father died. That affected the rest of her young adult life. Nearly three decades later, she's written a memoir about that experience. It's called What Looks Like Bravery. Braitman says she had a happy childhood, growing up on an idyllic ranch in California with donkeys and peacocks and avocado trees. But she had to keep a brave face as she watched her father get sick. She told me her parents never tried to hide his illness from her. Well, my dad was diagnosed with osteosarcoma, which is a rare and aggressive form of bone cancer. My parents absolutely did not try to protect us from it. And I think that was mostly a blessing, but it was also hard. So my dad was given an initial prognosis of about six months and prepared us for his death. You know, he said goodbye. Um, He started to get his affairs in order, and then he didn't die. Um, He went on his own journey for the next, oof, probably 14 years um, to find treatments, oftentimes experimental. But the thing was, we would never know how much time we were going to get. So we would get time with him in, in, in tiny chunks, like four months here, a year there, six weeks there, and then we'd say goodbye again. So we really lived with the ticking clock of mortality for years and years. We were never quite able to take a day for granted. Part of the reason that your father lived so much longer than his doctors thought he would is that he was very good at advocating for himself in the healthcare system, maybe because he was a doctor himself. You wrote he even got one surgery against the advice of his oncologist, but that bought him time. What lessons do you think his experience offer the rest of us about health advocacy, if anything at all? No one cares as much about your outcomes as you do. I learned that at a very, very early age. And that isn't to say that your healthcare team doesn't care about you. Absolutely, they do. But such is the way with modern healthcare. People aren't talking to each other. You need to be your own advocate. And against all odds, you need to fight for the kind of care that you deserve. And I wish that wasn't true um, in this country, but it absolutely is. And for him, it paid off, at least in terms of extra time with his family. It did. 
It did. He, he also taught me, you know, that you shouldn't be scared to ask questions of your physicians and nurses and other folks who are helping you. If a doctor is annoyed or frustrated by you asking questions, he told me to run, not walk out of their office, that a really good physician is just going to appreciate that you're asking questions and that you're curious and won't be threatened by the need to answer you. No one cares as much about your outcomes as you do. Your dad lived till a few months before your high school graduation. In your book, you jump all the way from his death to when you were 36 years old. You skip what happened in between. How would you sum up your life from high school till mid-30s? I was on an epic hamster wheel of achievement. You know, I would do anything for a brass ring of success. And the blessing of what my dad did when my brother and I were growing up was lay out all these beautiful things that we could become and things we could do as adults. But I overinterpreted that as a to-do list. And there was all kinds of things on there, you know, from writing a New York Times bestselling book to getting a PhD at MIT. And I spent 20 years, one by one, checking every single thing off that list he wanted for me. So by the time the book picks up again, when I'm in my mid-30s, I was exhausted. Do you think at some conscious or unconscious level you were you were doing that because you thought your dad wanted it? Oh, absolutely. You know, what I learned later... I became a grief counselor for bereaved kids who were in my situation, trying to learn from them. And one thing that I learned was that achievement or overachievement can be a trauma response. And really what it is, is an effort to control the uncontrollable. That subconsciously you believe that if I only do X, then Y will hurt a little less. And, and that, that's what I was doing. I was trying to exert control over a world where we can lose people we love for no reason at all. I think you described it as overachieving to contradict feelings of helplessness. Absolutely. Do you think that's what it did for you? It helped you um, overcome grief or a feeling of helplessness at some level? I would say it distracted me on pretty much every level. And you get positive reinforcement from the world. You know, so the better you do at school, the better you do in sports, and then eventually the better you do in your career, you get accolades, you get praise. And so even though for me in the end, it was a form of a unhealthy coping mechanism, I was getting rewarded for it. The only problem comes when enough losses catch up to you. And when new losses happen, that coping mechanism stopped working for me. You mentioned that you volunteered at a center for grieving children. and. You got some great advice from an eight-year-old girl. She said, the worst thing that you can do is try not to be sad. How did hearing that affect your own grieving process? It brought me to my knees. I spent decades trying to avoid feeling sad. I tried to achieve my way out of sadness. I tried to use excellence as an analgesic on a pain that I believe I couldn't have admitted was there. And seeing these kids face their own losses and their own pain with such bravery just brought me to my knees. When you realized that you had misinterpreted, in a way, why your dad had pushed you to accomplish so much, how did you then begin to live your life differently? Well, first I realized that grief wasn't something to run from, that my negative feelings weren't something to avoid. And that grief isn't something that we move through. And I think we really get that wrong in Western culture, that we think of grief, if not in stages, we do think it's something to survive 
or get to the other side of. And I realized that that was impossible. And not only that, but by turning towards it and turning towards my own pain, the joy of my life, the wonder, the beauty, all of that was turned up in the world. It was like I could finally see in a new color spectrum. Laurel Braitman is the author of What Looks Like Bravery, An Epic Journey Through Loss to Love. Laurel, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When life is flying by, it's important to take a moment to hit pause, set intentions, and reset. That's where BetterHelp Online Therapy comes in. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor BritBox, helping people discover a world of British TV, including new original drama Time, starring Jodie Whittaker, Tamara Lawrence, and Bella Ramsey. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. On September 11, 2001, Bobby McIlvain was just 26 years old at the World Trade Center, helping a friend set up for a presentation. He was killed and left behind many journals and diaries revealing a thoughtful inner world to the people who'd never see him again. Unfortunately, there were disagreements about who should get possession of one diary in particular, his last one. Jennifer Sr.'s new book, On Grief, talks about his mother's quest for that last diary and all the grief that continues to unfurl 20 years after the national tragedy. Here she is with NPR's Rachel Martin. He was an avid diarist, and he had a diary sitting on his desk on September 11th that his father gave to the woman that he was going to marry, that Bobby was going to marry. Her name is Jen. Mm -hmm. Her name was Jen, yes. And, you know, he was in this fugue state as he was cleaning out Bobby's room, and Jen was with him. And Jen took one look at that diary, saw that her name was all over it, and said, may I have this? And his father said, yes, yes, of course, take it. Maybe you'll find something in there that will be useful for the eulogy. He was trying to be kind. Mm -hmm. And Bobby's mother, when she found this out, was so upset and said, how can you give away the last thing our son ever wrote? It was, it's, it's a chance to have, to hear his voice one more time to, in a weird way, be in conversation with him, to hear fresh conversation from him. This was a chance to hear their son, who was a good writer and had a lively mind. And when she asked Jen, his fiancée, for this diary, she never got it back. Jen wouldn't give it back. And I became obsessed with this thing, just as Helen did. I could not understand why, why would you not give this back to a mother? And I, I just became bound and determined to get this diary back. Over all these years, you had just had Bobby's mom, Helen, her version of this story. That is exactly right. It did not occur to me that there could be a perfectly humane, plausible, sympathetic, really profound, goose-pimpling explanation for why Jen may have wanted to hang on to this diary. What happened when you tracked Jen down? And confronted her about this. I don't know if confront is the right word. Seems probably more aggressive than it actually was. She was extraordinarily gracious. I wrote her this very gingerly note. You know, I said to her, 
you know, that I, I really wanted to just ask her about how she was processing this trauma 20 years in. She wrote me back this incredibly nice note saying that she had a very fond memory of the two of us talking right after we had discovered that Bobby had died. I have no memory of this at all, which just shows how funny our memories are. I mean, to some degree, this book is about, the piece is about how flawed our memories are, particularly when it comes to trauma. But she couldn't have been more gracious, and she was ready to share it. And she she had got, contemplated it, and she was, I think, in a funny way, grateful for the opportunity. She was grateful for the opportunity to to talk with you, to sit and share memories, and... In the end, what did you learn about her motivations for keeping the journal? Oh, but if I tell that, I give. Oh, away. we don't have to. Oh no, we don't have to. I, 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 I always. Oh no, I love that you asked. Spoilers. No, I, I love I, that you asked. Well, here's here's what I will say. Okay. The last page, you read it, and I meant it. I, I mean, the, the hair, every hair on the back of my neck was, you know, standing up. It was it was when Helen finally saw it because Jen gave me permission to Xerox it, you know, Helen said, oh my God, how could she not have held on to it? I mean, I would have had to have given her this diary if I'd known what was in it. I mean, this is a 26-year-old young man, right? I think Helen made the mistake of thinking that there was going to be a lot of material in there about her. Because in his previous diaries, of course, in the diaries of a teenager, many of the ones that she'd seen, he talks about his family. But he had just fallen in love. A lot of this diary was about Jen. And I'm not going to say all the various things that were in there. And some of them are also about grief, coincidentally. Mm-hmm. And so what? So it made it doubly interesting because his diary wasn't just kind of this historical artifact, but kind of a crystal ball. It kind of had all of these pearls of wisdom about how to grieve, and no one could have predicted that. There's a subplot in this story about this marriage between yes. Helen and Bob Sr. Yes. And, wow, the grace that she extends to him as he is working through a lot of questions about how his kid died, right? And and there's not information. They don't know what his last moments were like. And so Bob Sr. starts to fill the vacuum with a lot of conspiracy theories. How did Helen absorb all that? Grace is such a perfect word. And it's Exactly right. I mean, he decided that the government was involved. This was an inside job. He went down a rabbit hole. She couldn't have cared less. In fact, she was, I wouldn't say hostile to this idea, but she really wanted no part of it. She didn't want to think about 9-11. She didn't want to think about 9-11 conspiracy theories. I mean, while she wanted to grieve in her own way. There was a grief counselor who told them early on, and this was a very useful metaphor for them, that here, when someone dies, you have to imagine that you are at the top of a mountain and you all have a broken leg. So you can't help each other get down the mountain. You're going to have to get down in your own way. And so this was his way. I mean, the only exception 
that I think one could take to that metaphor, which someone pointed out to me, is Bob Sr. doesn't even seem to want to get down the mountain, right? He wants to live in his grief. He's in this like kind of glass house of sorrow. And what's amazing to me is that Helen has accepted that and said he doesn't want to get down. You know, he's going to stay right here with his grief. That's it for this week on NPR's Book of the Day. Let us know what you think. You can write us at bookoftheday at npr.org. I'm Kia Miakonatis. The podcast is produced by Isabel Gomez Sarmiento and edited by Megan Sullivan. Our founding editor is Petra Mayer. The new show elements for this week were produced and edited by Kaliani Saxena, Gabe Bullard, Karen Zamora, Justine Kinnan, Adam Bierne, Rina Advani, and Claire Murashima. Beth Donovan is our managing editor. Thanks for listening. This message comes from NPR sponsor Acorn TV. Stream stories from around the world, from sinister suspense to charming comedies and clever crime dramas like My Life is Murder, starring Lucy Lawless. Visit acorn.tv for a 30-day free trial with promo code NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. On this week's episode of Wild Card, comedian Bowen Yang says you don't have to feel bad for falling short on mindfulness. I get in my own way by, like, over-privileging the present. That's so interesting because everyone wants to be in the present. I feel like being present is overrated. I'm Rachel Martin. Join us for NPR's Wild Card Podcast, the game where cards control the conversation.